0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English here with you, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health. I'm joined again by Dr. Josh Bloom, Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Josh, how are you on this fantastic spring day?
1: I am enjoying the first nice day in a century, it seems. so, um, And I had the misfortune well let's just call it the fortune of my internet going down for most of the day so i couldn't work oh what a terrible coincidence
0: (laughs) i had to spend all day outdoors on the beach because my internet wasn't working you know
1: i wasn't on the beach
0: (laughs) that's all i'll say on the matter (laughs) i think everybody uh everybody feels your pain josh i know uh,
1: it's, it's it's really tough
0: Let's, uh, let's jump into our stories. We've got two to discuss this week. One of them I wrote and the other one is yours and yours is going to be super controversial, which we love. Everyone loves talking about that. So we've got uh, earth day, 2022 doomsday isn't around the corner. And then the clinical trial that should in parentheses, but probably won't close the book on ivermectin. Oh boy. <laughs> well, let's start, uh, let's start this story on earth day. And, uh, By the time you guys hear this, it won't be Earth Day anymore. But I think the the principles that I'm discussing in this article will still be relevant because Environmental Working Group will still be around. People will still be trying to scare you about pesticides and warning you that the the end is nigh and all that. So uh, Earth Day just just taking place. The theme of the day, typically, if you go to any mainstream news site or you go to EarthDay.com itself, whatever organization puts that on. The theme is always, we're running out of time, the collapse is imminent, we have a climate crisis, things are getting bad, you know, live in fear, chaos is coming, all this kind of silliness. But if you actually look at some of the relevant data from some of the related fields, things are actually getting a lot better. And I give two examples in the story, we can discuss them in turn. But the the primary focus or the reason this happens is described by this principle in economics called the environmental Kuznets curve. And basically what it says is that as countries develop their economies, as they begin to acquire capital and they start to make more goods and they start to produce more serv- services for people to consume pollution increases in, in all kinds of ways, because you're developing industry that makes all this possible. Um, but then as they get wealthier and they have food, and they have clothes, and they have shelter, all the basics, then they start thinking about other things that need to be fixed, right? So you have a little money in your pocket, you have a place to live, you go, hey, you know, our drinking water isn't all that clean, maybe we should do something about that, you know? The sky is a kind of smoggy, I don't like that so much. And so they begin investing the additional resources they've acquired into environmental cleanup. And this is why the United States has an environmental protection agency, um, but Paraguay, doesn't. You know what I mean? So people that are hungry are focused on growing enough food to feed themselves. People that are full and have an ample food supply have the time and the resources to take care of other problems. And this is what you see all around the world. So you see, for example, um, wealthy countries, I just mentioned the United States, but uh, the United States, the UK, the European Union, these sorts of places, um, deaths uh, related to outdoor pollution, just to say one example, are low in these countries. They're also low in very, very poor countries that don't have uh, any sort of developed economy. Now, the, the difference there is that we have the resources to protect the environment, so the pollution that we do produce is much lower. Um, and then if there are any health effects associated with it, we can treat them. And in these other countries, they're not doing anything on the economic side. So there's no pollution to make anyone sick. Now, interestingly, if you look at a country like India, which is an emerging economy, you have wealth increasing, but you also have pollution-related uh, deaths increasing. So they're sort of right in the middle of this this environmental Kuznets curve I talked about. So it's it's pretty powerful confirmation.
1: Uh, Cameron, um, yeah. you, you, you just... You can't go through this topic without mentioning the uh, the uh, concurrence of wealth and hypocrisy within nations, uh, because uh, the richer you get, the um, more people have time to complain about things or make them up if there's nothing to complain about, and what that does is It gives groups like uh, the Environmental Working Group, maybe the dumbest group of people uh, on this continent, if not all of them. Uh, It it gives them chances uh, to hit all the wealthy people up by convincing us, us. well, I'm not really one of them, but uh, convincing them that – we're all being poisoned by these tiny amounts of plasticizers, pesticides, and et cetera, et cetera. So, if you're if you're earning a good income, you have time um, to get neurotic and worry about these things. But if you're like gonna starve if you don't hit a fish over the head in the next day or two, no nobody worries about plasticizers or anything like that, and. Um, I know I've gone, gone on a rant here, but I've gone after the uh, environmental working group many times. Their business model is brilliant and their science is quite the opposite. It's a really good point.
0: That's a really good point. And I think what, what you're adding here is that we're, we run out of real problems, you know, so we have, we have the wealth and we have the time to worry about things, but when there are no uh, imminent crises, you know, when the air isn't polluted, when the drinking water is clean, um, when you have enough food, when, you're, when your kids aren't dying from cancers because there's molds in the food supply, that kind of stuff. When you don't have these sort of life-threatening issues to deal with, you start looking at, uh, you know, BPA and you start worrying about synthetic pesticides and you, you just start inventing fears. But I think that kind of illustrates the point I was making, which is that you know, we solve problems as we get wealthier and the whole earth day charade that it has become sort of reflects that is what I think.
1: I completely agree. And, um, it's the, the thing about the EPA is, uh, it really did its job, what, 40 years ago, whenever, uh, paint started disappearing from gasoline and I'm, I'm sorry, lead started disappearing from paint and gasoline. The, um, the lead blood levels have gone down hugely. I mean, it, it's not even close to what it was. Uh, the air is better. Uh, we've got catalytic converters that take out the smog now. If you look at pictures of New York or Los Angeles in the 70s, you can barely see the buildings, and now the skies are clear. So, um, also, the EPA um, has made it impossible for chemical factories to just dump stuff into the river. They can't do it anymore. So the water and the air are better. The lead levels are down. Like, um, I would think one would be celebrating instead of complaining on Earth Day, wouldn't you? Yeah. And that's
0: that's the point of my story is to say, let's look at all the progress we've made because it's excellent. I think there's a sort of bias built into the way we look at the world now because we're so used to things being really good. We don't know what true deprivation is. And I'm not talking about in our personal lives, we all have struggles and some people go through really traumatic experiences. But as a matter of material health and wealth, if you live in the United States today, even if you're on the poorer end of the spectrum, you don't know true suffering you know like even even like at the poverty line or below it you still have enough food to eat there are you like you have access to to resources in a variety of ways if you live on the other side of the world you know if you live in eastern africa um you know the difference between you being able to feed your family or send your kids to school could be the crop harvest you know so you're just praying that that it, you know, it doesn't get destroyed by uh, an insect infestation. So that's, that's the difference. But I think we need to celebrate the progress we've made, and we need to help other countries
1: get there. Well, you made a great point about Eastern Africa. And talk about hypocrisy. Uh, what, what's their problem? Lack of food. How do you solve it? proper use of pesticides and GM technology. What does EWG stand for? No pesticides and and no GM technology. So the worst enemy to Eastern Africa, as far as I'm concerned, are NRGC and EWG. I I wonder if they really understand how much damage they're doing. I don't know.
0: I I try not to speculate about motives because... I know that in the work that I do, my motivations are pure and I'm trying to make the world better in a small way, you know, however I can do that. And they probably perceive themselves doing that too. Now they're dead wrong. And I think they know that their methodology is misleading and the conclusions they draw are misleading, but I think they probably see it in service to a bigger cause. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I think the facts are, they're just just wrong and that's what we need to focus on but let me before we move on to your ivermectin story there's one criticism people will typically level at the argument i've made and they will say the environment's cleaner because we have an epa it's because we have regulators to keep these these evil industries in check and uh you know if we didn't have the federal government looking out for us you know the the whole world would collapse your your babies would be born naked and illiterate and i mean it would be a disaster right um But even if you want to credit the EPA and the EPA, of course, will pat itself on the back and they'll say, look, you know, there's these new regulations that gave us the authority to take care of this. But the reality is, is that the EPA has a multi-billion dollar budget every year and you need resources to fund that that kind of work, right? So you need a robust economy. You need wealthy people that care about this stuff, even to regulate the pollution out of existence. So I think that's a, a very important point but we can we can move on and we can uh get the entire world upset at you when we talk about this uh this ivermectin review that just came out Josh so right, tell us a little bit need, about it
1: I just need to finish i I, I think um, there are hardships in this country, and they have nothing to do with the environment um, uh, obviously covid obviously the f- fact that we could be uh, having nuclear missiles dropped on Washington at any given moment and the real housewives of New Jersey. So these are, these are real problems and I would like to see the environmental working group take care of those in their spare time. (laughs) Yeah. Let them focus on
0: the housewives of New Jersey. Yes. Then uh, hopefully somebody smarter can figure out how to keep um, powerful, countries from dropping bombs on each other.
1: <laughs> okay. That's all I'll say on this, fortunately. Okay.
0: <laughs> all right. So um, if you weren't mad at Josh, chances are good, you're going to be mad at him after this. Uh, Cause there was just this major review published about the, the efficacy of ivermectin against COVID-19. So what did the study or what did this, this analysis find Josh?
1: Well, um, ivermectin I'm not going to get into the politics of it because I don't want to talk about it. I'll get a stomachache and, you know, there's a lot of political stuff, which I just don't want to speak about at all. But um, if you trace back drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, uh, they become almost like religions to certain groups of people who are convinced they work. Now, I'm not saying that ivermectin doesn't work. I'm saying that by far the largest clinical trial and we're talking about a randomized controlled clinical trial in Brazil was completed with roughly 1500 people and they had matched groups double blinded the whole works and the results of the trial were were that th- there were there were no measurable differences between the group that got placebo and the group that got ivermectin. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that at the dose that was given and during the timeline that it was given, and you could argue that neither was sufficient, uh, nothing happened. The, the statistics are dead clear. I mean, there, there, there isn't a statistically significant change in any of the parameters, and there are lots of them that they measured. But people have been writing and saying, well, they're only giving, giving it for three days. Why? I mean, you know, we give uh, Pfizer and Merck drugs for five days, and the answer is I don't know because that's how they ran the trial. Would six days have been better or 10 days? I don't know, possibly. And the dose was 400 micrograms per kilo of uh, body weight. And average person is 70 kilos. So that's about 28 milligrams a day. If they doubled that, would that work? I don't know. What about zinc? A lot of people think you need zinc to make these things work, although that started with azithromycin and that didn't do anything there. Uh, there was not zinc included. And what about vitamin D and azithromycin and et cetera, et cetera? And as I wrote very clearly in the article, none you cannot prove that ivermectin is not effective. From this clinical trial, all you can show is that there's um, very good evidence that at this dose for this length of time, there are no effects on any outcomes that they measured. So I didn't make up the protocol of the uh, trial. I just reported on it. But uh you know, it didn't stop me from getting yelled at, but I kind of getting used to that.
0: <laughs> After all your years of uh challenging people's uh pet beliefs, I think you'd be used to it. But um I'm I'm looking at the the forest plot from the study. I'm wondering if you can break this down for us a little bit, just to give people a you know a little fuller picture of what we're talking about. So from the numbers I'm seeing here, and they broke it down by age, BMI, cardio, uh, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, sex, so smoking status, I'm just not seeing much of a difference between the groups that were well, the control groups and the uh, the treatment groups. So, so tell us a little about this.
1: Well, uh, it's hard to describe a forest plot um, without any kind of visuals, but um, basically, it's a square. square. And on the left side of the square are a bunch of different conditions, like uh, smoking, overweight, diabetes. And next to that is a horizontal line, which shows the range of the relative risk for that particular parameter. And let's say... um, I believe it was on the left side. Let me back it up again, sorry. Um, so each parameter gets a horizontal line between two bars, and that bar shows the margin of error for that parameter. Now, right in the middle, marked one, is no effect. So the relative uh, risk is one for the two groups. The ivermectin group on the left And placebo on the right. So, if if either group, if if, um, ivermectin was superior to placebo, you would see a bunch of these bars with this with the errors included, all grouped within um, the the same side of the vertical null line. In other words there would be statistical proof or let's just say significance that in that group of people ivermectin was superior to placebo or the other way around depending on where the uh, horizontal bars were. Now the I'm not bad about statistics, but the one thing that anybody can look at in a forest plot is if the horizontal lines cross the vertical line, It's not significant. So in other words, if the range goes from uh, ivermectin is a little bit better to placebo is a little bit better, thus crossing the the vertical line, you, you have to throw that result out. And in this case, there were, I don't know, eight or 10 different parameters. I don't have them shown to me. And not a single one of them um, avoided that line. So it, it's safe to say statistically that there was no effect. And it wasn't just on um, the uh, primary endpoints or outcomes hospitalization, ventilation, but also deaths and time in the hospital, how long it took to clear to the virus side effects from the drug or the placebo. Basically all groups were equal. So the the trial was very well run and it, it and its conclusion is there's no difference between the two under these conditions. And uh, I'll argue that with anyone. Now we whether this has any bearing on the use of ivermectin under different conditions or using it, using it prophylactically or higher doses or with other drugs or minerals or whatever this does not address that at all
0: so inevitably one of the counterarguments you're going to hear is uh well i took it and uh it mm-hmm. worked for me and uh as you as you alluded to earlier you know they'll say well you need a longer course, you need a higher dose. You gotta, you gotta combine it with pop tarts and then you'll really get the the full effect of it. So do you think there's a problem with people taking it, even if there isn't great evidence for it? Like if you find a doctor and the doctor says, you know, this won't hurt you, it might help you. So let's give it a shot. Um, is there anything
1: wrong with that? Um, maybe a year ago you could say, Okay, we have nothing better, so give it a shot. You know, it's it's a it's a pretty safe drug when you when you keep it within the normal therapeutic doses. So under those conditions it, i I couldn't really be um terribly negative about somebody wanting to try it. But now there are three, at least three approved drugs. Uh, two pills and an antibody. Well, two pills and antibody and an IV treatment, and and these have been shown to work. They they really do work, from sort of well to really well. So then, now at this point, uh, you kind of need to be crazy to take something that hasn't been shown definitively to work. When you've got um, a legitimate antiviral out of Pfizer and and a, a lesser one out of Merck and also monoclonal antibodies, which work very well. And these are available to people now. So I would never advise anyone to take ivermectin now in lieu of these real medications. I should also point out that if you think about how many viruses we treat with medicines, there are what, maybe four or five. Um, HIV, obviously, hepatitis C, herpes, shingles, and um, now COVID. And in every case, the drugs are direct-acting antivirals. In other words, they target a specific mechanism by which the virus replicates and knock out that step. And then the virus stops replicating. And this all comes back from the seventies and the eighties and the nineties when, when AIDS medicines were finally um, being developed and there are six or seven classes of AIDS meds. They work extremely well. And every one of them has a specific function in targeting, um, something that the virus needs to replicate. So there's no magic in this. If you've got a compound which has antiviral activity, potent antiviral activity, and survives in the blood, uh, good chance, and it's not prohibitively toxic, there's a very good chance that's going to work. So the problem I have with some of these other drugs is they had extremely weak antiviral activity, uh, weak enough that you'd never be able to give a a high enough dose for it to work. So that's not to say that um, some of these drugs aren't treating, let's say, the inflammation, the cytokine cytokine storm, or whatever. And, you know, it's possible. Um, But um, just looking at the history of antiviral drug discovery and treatments, this you know antiviral drugs work by being antiviral drugs with almost no exception. So that that's why I I write and urge people to to take a look at you know the science of what these drugs are doing and how they stop the virus or slow it down. By doing something that the virus need take, taking away something that the virus needs to replicate, the virus stops replicating. Then you, the disease is over. So that's my bias against some of these drugs, um, and even fluvoxamine, which looked pretty good in clinical trials and um, seemed to keep people out of the hospital. That's the old. That's the antidepressant. Uh, I'm biased against that, even though it seems to work because it's not an antiviral. It, it seems to be controlling the aftermath of the infection. And it's always better to prevent or treat uh, a viral infection than it is to treat the fallout from the viral infection. I mean, that's just, that's straightforward.
0: You were telling me a little earlier that uh, there's there's been some concern about um, comeback cases after people are treated with Paxlovid, which is the, the the primary antiviral treatment we have right now for COVID nineteen. So, um, I mean, you 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 worked for a, a pharma company for a long time. So, what do you think? What do you think's happening here? Are they just not taking it long enough? Are they not getting a high enough dose? Um, what's the, what's the situation? Can you fill us in on that?
1: My best guess is. It has nothing to do with resistance. Um, Resistance to protease inhibitors happens over months and years, not five days. So the fact that people are becoming reinfected over 10 or 12 days, this is a new story. I just saw it. Um, The only thing that makes any sense to me is that the five-day treatment makes them feel better. They go back to work or whatever they're doing, and but for whatever reason they haven't cleared the virus, so now the medicine's not in them anymore, and the virus is still there, and they pick up a milder infection than what they had in the first place. Uh, assuming I'm right, and I, I would, I think there's a pretty good chance there. Uh, then you might want to extend the dose by X number of days, or restart it if the um, if the infection comes back. I'm not really concerned about this, although it will be used uh, as a target on the back of the drug because now people will say, see, this stuff's no good. But you know, that's my only real concern about this at this time. I think it's probably going to be a non-issue.
0: Yeah, I hope you're right. I, what I think is interesting about that response as we wrap up is um, we want a variety of treatments and vaccines, right? right? You want to deploy an array of tools um, to keep the problem under control, you know? And, and that's what I find strange just by comparison, like the anti-pesticide groups, you know, they cheer every time the EPA bans a pesticide or, you know, a manufacturer gets sued into oblivion and they take a product off the shelves, but that's bad, right? Because, if you want overall lower use of a chemical, you want a variety of chemicals so people can use a little bit of each one in different contexts, and that's how you solve the problem. And it's the same thing here with COVID, right? You want a variety of treatments so the virus doesn't overcome the only one that you have, and that's that's good. I just don't understand why people don't see it that way.
1: Well, I think you got to, you have to get back to ideology, because with the pesticide groups and the environmental groups, they don't want any chemicals out there. So every time one gets banned, that's cause to celebrate. Whatever the effects are, doesn't matter. It's just it's it's good karma for them. And um, I think there are quite a number of people who want these Pfizer and Merck drugs to fail because they're so locked into the ivermectin thing that that that's the drug that is going to save the world uh, from this pandemic. And I absolutely know for sure that anytime something wrong shows up, like the Merck drug wasn't as effective as uh, it it looked like it was going to be initially, the vaccines aren't lasting as long as they initially figured uh the these these crazy variants are coming out the vaccines aren't as good against them i think there are people that actually celebrate all of these negative developments because just like with the environmentalists and pesticides this is fitting their ideology which if you think about it in a drug is just plain nuts okay it's a molecule it's it's it, this is not something that should be argued about, right? And I guess I'll never really understand it.
0: Yeah, some people, you can't convince them. So let them do their own thing. That's fine. I think the two of us and most of you listening, we can celebrate, right? We got cleaner air, cleaner water. We got more food. We're using less land to grow all that food. We got multiple drugs for COVID. Got multiple vaccines, you know, and maybe they're not, the game changers that we hoped they were, but they are still effective in keeping people people out of the hospital and keeping them alive, which is, of course, what we're all interested in. So I think, overall, Josh, we're in a good place.
1: Except for the Real Housewives of New Jersey, I would have to agree with you.
0: on that. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a nuclear bomb joke and tie it into Real Housewives, but I thought, you know promoting violence on this new podcast probably not a way to <laughs> a great way to start off our show
1: <laughs> yeah, it may be unwise but um you, know what you have to do cameron
0: yeah i'm just kidding by the way i don't condone violence in any way and i love the real housewives of new jersey it's my favorite show
1: you gotta be kidding me oh, of course i am good i my must wife, have been
0: con- my- must have been convincing just now though if you thought i was uh <laughs> well, <yeah>. anyways <laughs>
1: My, my my wife is one of the smartest people I know, and she loves it. So you just let her
0: out. That is what it is. We, uh, we husbands will endure. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. If you want to get on the newsletter and uh, get in the loop about the stories we talk about on the show, just go to ACSH.org. That's our website. Punch in your email, and you'll get on the list. So you know what we're talking about. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at ACSH org. And Josh, what's your Twitter handle? Because uh, you're you're quite popular these days on the Twitters.
1: Uh, you know, when I first started, I didn't even know how to use Twitter. So I, I picked a bad name, but it's just my name. Josh Bloom ACSH is my Twitter handle. And it's not really that clever or creative or short, but that's what it is.
0: Yeah, I I think that Twitter handles are like band names in that they don't matter as long as what you're producing is interesting. So if you're a good band, you can call yourself whatever. And same thing with a scientist on Twitter. If you're putting out good stuff, call yourself Bubba or Hey You. It doesn't matter.
1: Okay, I'll I'll see if Bubba's available. Uh, I'll get back to you on that.
0: Yeah, you might have to use five Bs, but I think you could get it. In any case, thank you guys. We will see you next time with a new batch of stories.